historical range. There are two more streams where the fish needs to be introduced successfully for this to be achieved. Mr. Liao says the park has no solid target in terms of numbers. He says that while a population of around 20,000 spread across five streams would mean the species is in less danger of extinction, the park knows that every stream has a different number of fish that it can support. Its goal instead is to get each stream's population as high as is sustainable. After all, the park is only helping to make the conditions right for recovery. It's trusting in nature to do the rest. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Charles Du is a NASA engineer turned yoga teacher. He originally was from Beijing but moved to the United States with his parents at the age of nine. He studied aerospace engineering at the University of Michigan. Now, the word grow is very important to him. He teaches about growth. He's super passionate about education, and he's been teaching online software product management. He worked at NASA, but two years later, he got fired. And then he started working on another NASA project. And let's find out what that one's about. Right now, if you go to the App Store for the iPhone and you download the NASA app, so that originally was my、oh. product. So the NASA iPhone app is a content app where you can get、um, different pictures from NASA, the astronomy picture of the day.、Oh, you can、see. track different missions. You can、uh. track、uh, like where the International Space Station is in real time, like、yeah. and calculate when it's going to fly over your head.、Uh, it's got、uh, live streaming. So basically, I was the person that came up with the idea, and then I had a Developer that I worked with, so a team of two, and we kind of made that idea into an actual product that people can use. Well, that sounds cool. But what happened to that job? Okay, so <laughs> when I was、uh, close to finishing it,、uh, there was a civil servant at the time, and the civil servant said, "Okay, how about when we design the app? Let's think about how to、um, bring in different centers and highlight different centers, because NASA has ten centers, and then they all have different funding." So if we highlight different NASA centers, maybe we can get more funding, or maybe we can get more、uh, political leverage through them. And at that time, I was still kind of fresh. I was, I was probably like 24, 25 at the time.、Uh-huh. And for me, I didn't really respect the hierarchy. I was like, I'm designing an app. This is my baby, my product, and it's for you know the the millions of people out there. I don't want to think about how it's going to bring funding to different NASA centers. It's not a politically driven product. It's a user centric product. Eventually,、uh, she talked to some people, and then I got, you know, technically laid off because I just didn't really work well with her.、Uh-huh. And one of the things working for the government, you realize, you know, there's a lot of people where they can be difficult to work with, but they can't get fired. You know,、right. if they don't get performed well, and they're a civil servant,、mm-hmm. then they pretty much have a job for life. And、right. I was. Uh, in one of those situations, so then I got fired from my second NASA job. <laughs> However, later on, you know, when this app became a huge success, it won、uh, the Software of the Year award. 
I ended up getting a medal. I got a bunch of uh, awards because everybody's like, oh yeah, you know, Charles was, you know, one of the two members of the team that made it. And this person that ended up, you know, firing me, she didn't get the credit um, because eventually she got placed on another project as well because she didn't really do well with the existing team either. When I got fired, I got a job uh, at this other organization that ended up being this crazy like Silicon Valley um, university called Singularity University uh, that led me to uh, me being a founder in another really successful startup in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. So every single time when something happens to me, like getting fired um, or me realizing this is not the environment to me, I I used to be like, man, this sucks. You know, this is the worst day of my life. Mm -hmm. But now looking back, I think about those are the moments of transformation those are the moments where the universe is telling me you know this environment is not a good fit or you've outgrown this environment it's time for the next stage so now whenever something like this happens i get excited (laughs) um just like how i eventually got into yoga which i know is like a long answer to your original question yeah yeah and just like the first two jobs the the transition into yoga started with pain in your eyes uh, it wasn't with my eyes. Okay. Well, yeah, because you did a regular <laughs> yoga in the beginning. Okay. Yeah. So a few years ago, I was uh, cliff jumping off Ooh. of uh, this really high place. I think it was around four stories uh, in Vietnam. Uh-huh. And then when I jumped from four stories into the water, the impact of the water pulled my arm up like all of a sudden. And that impact did a number of things around my shoulder area. Uh, my chest area and my back area. And I remember feeling so much pain. Like there are times where, you know, when I'm breathing, I can feel the tightness of of all this, all this muscle areas. And then during that time of struggle and pain and suffering. You went to the doctors, right? Yeah, I went to the doctor. Uh, And, you know, they put me through physical therapy, Mm. uh, which helped. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also started to think back to the times that I get injured while playing soccer. I, I remembered those times where I did yoga uh, while I had injuries, that kind of helped me. Like it, it made me feel better. So then I joined this, it was an amazing yoga gym where they had instructors from all over the world and all they did was yoga. So it was a yoga studio uh, that was really high end. And then they had multiple classes going on every single hour. Um, and that's where I fell in love with yoga. Okay. And then that eventually made me realize this is such a powerful growth framework where not only does it heal the body, it eventually heals the mind mm. and the spirit, and it grows it at such a subtle level. So I fell in love with yoga, and then I got trained as a teacher, and now I teach a very special type of yoga that is helping me improve my vision. Right, eye yoga. What was your eyesight before? Yeah, so I got glasses when I was 10, and I was minus 3 and minus 3.25. And I have astigmatism on my right eye. So for pretty much over 25 years of my life, I was nearsighted and I was on glasses and contacts. I discovered this amazing type of yoga called eye yoga. Uh And basically eye yoga is a type of yoga that focuses um, on the muscles that helps you focus. It's called the ciliary muscles, which controls the shape of the lens. And by intentionally practicing those muscles, we can slowly improve our vision. Uh, late last year, I was minus three and minus 3.25. And after practicing it for three months, I brought my glasses now down to minus 0.5 in each eye. 
That's amazing. Have you taught any、um, students eye yoga, and their eyesight have also improved? Yes, almost every single student、yeah. that goes through a one-hour program experiences a measurable vision improvement. One hour in one hour. It's, wow! It's it's one of those things where, you know, you think about it and you're like, "This is a miracle," but then you try it and you're like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> like my vision has changed because I'm not an eye doctor. But I am a former NASA engineer, so when I look at problems like this, I think about systems, and the human eye,、um, and also vision is basically there's a muscular system that's involved, there's a skeletal system that's involved, there's also an electrical system that's involved, which is your, yeah,、okay. so your central nervous system.、Hmm. So basically, the way that our vision works is we we have light, it comes into our eye, and then there's a couple of pieces of the eye、um, that helps focus the light. And then the light gets pieced together into an image, and that eventually leads to、um, what we think of as vision.、Mm. So with all these dis- these systems come into place, yoga is like a way of fine tuning the system, little bit, little bit at a time. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. So you're teaching eye yoga classes now. Yeah, so currently I live in Taipei, and I basically、uh, teach small classes, so only up to four students. So for people that want、oh. to experience eye yoga, I adults teach only, adults, children, Ch- Ch- okay, yeah, anybody with a vision problem. Okay,、um, I also give lectures, so basically teaching people, you know, all right, how how does the eye work? What causes the common problems like nearsightedness, farsightedness, dry eyes, astigmatism. I've got dry eyes. I、yeah. can talk to you later. Yeah,、okay. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then I'm also going to start hosting retreats.、Uh, so only those with eye problems can be your students.、Uh, no, anybody who wants to improve their vision can be my my student. So if someone who's got perfect eyesight, should they come to you? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as perfect eyesight.、Okay. The way we measure our eyes is totally subjective. So you might have heard of like 20/20 vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the way that 2020 vision works is, there's a Stellan chart, and when he first came up with this this measuring process, he he decided, okay, this distance reading this size of font is what I deem to be normal, and I'm gonna call this the standard. Okay. So that is what we typically call perfect, but in reality, you know, our vision changes. Throughout different lighting conditions, it changes throughout the day. Oh, really? The Maasai warriors in Africa have been known to have better than perfect vision, and some of the best vision in the world. Wow! So, first of all, there is no perfect vision, and two, you know, because our eyes are changing constantly,、um, you can practice them to see better. And the definition of better could be like you know, looking to the distance, seeing greater detail. Or if you're、um, a little bit older,、uh, looking up close and being able to decipher what the letters are. So there's a range of what our vision can do, and eye yoga can help you、um, improve your vision to the point that you can see clear, either far or near. So that's, I guess, what my definition of improvement or growth is. It doesn't have to be perfect. It can, it can because that word it doesn't have a lot of meaning. It's just.、Yeah. Compared to like a subjective standard, right? Well, you just started your own eye yoga just only last year, you said. Yeah. So one of my passions is growth. So I think a lot about how can I grow the fastest in the area of interest.、Um, to give you an example, 
So in one year in my yoga world, I started practicing yoga, got trained as a yoga teacher for Hatha, got trained as a yoga teacher for restorative, and then started to teach as a guest artist in a five-star resort in a private island in Malaysia. Oh, wow. So I did okay. all of this in, in one year. Because I think if you can have the right growth framework and learn the right way, I think time becomes less and less of a variable. Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, you know, when you think about, oh, who qualifies as an expert? And then it's it's like this many hours or they've they've done this for this many years. But I think a lot of those are correlations and not causations. And I'm always interested in what is the best way to grow and how can I put myself into that growth framework and just intentionally grow. So when I find something, I just like a heat seeking missile, I go all in on it. So it's been a long time since you've been working remotely and traveling around the world. And I know that you know, sometimes in a year, you kind of uh, switch countries by the season. You actually have been here in town for the last year now. You were saying something about town being that you've discovered as being the best what work environment for or what opportunities or what is it for for you i'm so glad to hear that that it's taiwan i mean why yeah so it happened with a, a dinner experience uh, a few years ago i got invited by a friend to join a, a wedding in taipei and i was only coming here for a weekend and then as part of the short weekend trip i ate at this it's a kaya place like jujiu wu uh -huh. And I remember ordering the, the fish. It was like a mackerel. And when the mackerel came out, um, the server was like, you know, normally the mackerel is this big, but the mackerel that we're giving you is a little bit smaller than usual. So is it okay if we charged you less? When that happened, it really touched me. I was like, who would do such a thing to <laughs> go out of their way to save you money when, you know, it could just been the normal price? I wouldn't have known. Not only does this place have amazing food, uh, the people are so warm uh -huh. and it's so touching. And you start to realize, you know, like after living in Taipei and different parts of Taiwan, like the people here are so warm and friendly that this is kind of like the norm. So for those reasons, I decided, okay, I think this is a great environment for me to grow or um, I want to grow right now. Um, and specifically, like even now, like when I'm doing eye yoga, like Taiwan has one of the highest density of people with the vision problems in the world. Yeah, just opportunities for me to share what I what I'm really passionate about right now, which is eye yoga and the people are all really supportive and really friendly. Uh, and I love food, you know, people ask me why I picked Taiwan. And I told them it's because of the food. And then they laugh. And then I, I tell them a little bit more. And then, you know, I, I, I ask them to think, well, every day we eat three times a day. So it kind of makes sense to pick a place where the food is really, really good. <laughs> you know, it affects our health. It affects a lot of things. Sure. Um, and then at Taiwan, um, I can get better food, a higher diversity, diversity. of food mm -hmm. for a fraction of the cost I would pay in the U.S. And who knows, you'll be into some other kind of big projects that nobody has ever touched. And it would be, be amazing then to hear the story, too. So it's been a great time talking to you, Charles. Thank you so much for coming in. And good luck with everything you're doing and contributing to Taiwan and the world. <laughs> so thank you so much, Charles. Thank you so much, Shirley. I had so much fun in this interview. So uh, best of luck to you. And uh, I can't wait to hear more. All right. So. Thank you.
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I am Natalie So. Du Fu was one of the greatest poets of the Tang Dynasty. Nearly 1,500 of his poems have been preserved, and he greatly influenced Chinese and Japanese literary culture. He's been called the Chinese Shakespeare, and was also known as a great poet, historian, and poet sage. His ambition at the time was to serve his country as a successful civil servant, but that didn't really work out. His life was disturbed by the Anlusan Rebellion of 755, and the last 15 years of his life were spent in unrest and uncertainty. Today, we read a few of his most famous works. This one is called "A Night Vigil in the Left Court of the Palace." Flowers are shadowed. The palace darkens. Birds twitter by for a place to perch. Heaven's ten thousand windows are twinkling, and nine cloud terraces are gleaming in the moonlight. While I wait for the golden lock to turn, I hear jade pendants tinkling in the wind. I have a petition to present in the morning. All night I ask, what time it is. Du Fu writes about taking leave of friends on my way to Huazhou. In the second year of Zida, I escaped from the capital through the Gate of Golden Light and went to Fengxiang. In the first year of Chenyuan, I was appointed. As official to Huazhou, from my former post of censor, friends and relatives gathered and saw me leave by the same gate, and I wrote this poem. This is the road by which I fled, when the rebels had reached the west end of the city, and terror, ever since, has clutched at my vitals. Lest some of my soul should never return, the court has come back now, filling the capital. But the emperor sends me away again, useless and old. I rein in my horse for one last look at the thousand gates. Dufu writes about remembering my brothers on a moonlit night. 
A wanderer hears drums portending battle. By the first call of autumn from a wild goose at the border. He knows that the dews tonight will be frost. How much brighter is the moonlight at home? Oh, my brothers lost and scattered. What is life to me without you? Yet if missives and time of peace go wrong, what can I hope for during war? Now, Du Fu was a contemporary and a friend of the great poet Li Bai. When he met Li Bai, Li Bai was already a very famous star poet. He looked up to him and wrote quite a few poems about him. This one is called To Li Bai at the Sky's Send. A cold wind blows from the far sky. What are you thinking of, old friend? The wild geese never answer me. Rivers and lakes are flooded with rain. A poet should beware of prosperity. Yet demons can haunt a wanderer. Ask an unhappy ghost through poems to him, where he drowned himself in the Milo River. That was poetry by the great Tang Dynasty poet, Du Fu. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Listening to News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Today we will continue focusing on the COVID 19 pandemic. Since the outbreak began in Wuhan, China last December, the highly contagious disease has spread rapidly around the world. It has killed more than 110,000 people and infected over 1.8 million people worldwide. To protect oneself and others from the new coronavirus, Taiwanese officials offer more details on how to keep a safe social distance. Taiwan has new social distancing guidelines. Central Epidemic Command Center official He Qigong explains the details of the new rules that are aimed to prevent a major outbreak. 
Find new ways like this to say hello, and remember these principles. First, keep a 1.5-meter distance from others indoors and 1-meter distance outdoors. But if you wear a mask, you can sit closer. Second, wear a mask in enclosed and crowded spaces. Don't talk if you're in an elevator or sharing a meal. If you want to talk after a meal, put on your mask. Third, after the long weekend, monitor your health. If you have any symptoms, put on a mask. Get medical treatment and inform doctors of your travel history. Social distancing is how we can protect ourselves and others. Schools in Taiwan are taking every possible precaution to keep out COVID-19. Anything that could cause diseases to spread is being changed, including the ways that students brush their teeth at school. Before the COVID-19 pandemic, students at Taiwanese elementary schools were encouraged to brush their teeth after lunch. They would gather around a sink and brush before heading off to their next class. Obviously, this is no longer an option. Students are still brushing their teeth after lunch, but they must take turns and keep a safe distance from one another. Schools are now extending lunch hours to make sure everyone gets a turn at the sink. Now, the K-12 Education Administration says that students can remain at their desks while they brush their teeth. To do this, they will need to prepare two cups, one filled with water for gargling and the other for spitting into after brushing. It is yet to be seen whether this will catch on. But the way schools see it, a pandemic is no excuse for forgetting good oral hygiene. Shirley Lin, RTI News. Two Taiwanese high schools known for the strengths of their robotics programs have put their students' talents to work in the fight against COVID-19. With robotic inventions, these students are making sure that on campus, at least, the pandemic will have a hard time catching on. The southern city of Tainan prides itself on two high schools that excel in teaching robotics. Their names are a bit of a mouthful, National Baymun Senior High School and National Nanka International Experimental High School. But they are names young people into robotics are likely to have heard before. Both schools send students to represent Taiwan at international youth events like the first robotics competition. With COVID-19 spreading around the world, though, competitions overseas are out of the question for now. So robotics students at these schools have turned their attention instead to keeping COVID-19 off campus. Both schools now have robots that can take people's temperatures and spray their hands with rubbing alcohol, meaning school officials no longer have to do these jobs and get close to others in the process. The robot at Baymun can avoid obstacles, and the robot at Nanke has a remote monitoring system teachers can use to make sure hands are clean and people on campus keep a safe distance from one another. John Van Trieste, RTI News. This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound. About two weeks ago, larger-than-expected crowds flocked to tourist hotspots for the Tomb Sweeping Festival. And that's led to concern of a possible uptick in COVID-19 cases in Taiwan. Officials are urging people to stay vigilant, saying the pandemic is not yet over. Taiwan has been relatively successful in fighting off the new coronavirus, so much so that people felt comfortable leaving their homes for the four-day tomb sweeping holiday last weekend. 
Massive crowds gathered at popular vacation hotspots, sparking a reaction on social media. Blindsided by the sudden surge in crowds, the Central Epidemic Command Center sent out a text reminding people to follow social distancing guidelines. Now that the long weekend has ended, officials are calling on people who traveled to any of the busy areas to stay home for 14 days. Authorities have identified 11 of these busy areas. But Health Minister Chen Sizong says that it's hard to define exactly what a busy area is. He says he can only offer a rough definition and ask people to use their best judgment. Chen says employers should allow people to work from home in order to maintain social distance. The CECC is also calling on the public to remain vigilant. Although Taiwan has the capacity to test a large number of people for COVID-19, a large number of cases could overwhelm the medical system. Local authorities have assured the public that areas which saw large crowds over the weekend have already been disinfected. Leslie Liao, RTI News. Taiwan recently won international praise for donating medical supplies to other countries. The move caught the attention of the world, and people are realizing just how much of a difference the small island country can make. With many countries struggling to find enough medical supplies to take care of COVID-19 patients, Taiwan has lent a helping hand. People like Swedish parliamentarian Margarita Sederfelt are taking notice and speaking on Taiwan's behalf. A country with 23 million people has successfully staved off the epidemic. That country is Taiwan. Mr. Prime Minister, are you willing to help Taiwan join the WHO? The Swedish Prime Minister says that he cannot give a concrete answer, but he does agree with Cedarfelt that international cooperation is very important. Taiwan's representative office in Sweden thanked Cedarfelt for her concern. But these days, Taiwan is getting more thanks than it's giving. Dear people, The mayor of Prague recently released a video thanking Taiwan for a donation of medical equipment. Thank you very much also for the donation of the ventilators. They will be used to save lives in our hospitals. Leslie Liao, RTI News. To end today's program, we have a story about endangered salmon. Around 30 years ago, the Formosan landlocked salmon looked like it might soon be finished. This salmon subspecies native to Taiwan is considered a national treasure. But it only lives in freshwater streams 1,500 meters or higher in the mountains. And problems like overdevelopment around this narrow habitat had driven it near the brink of extinction. Since then, though, one of Taiwan's national parks has been carefully bringing back its population to sustainable levels. And the wide population has just passed a milestone. In 1992, there were only around 200 Formosan landlocked salmon left. This fish had survived in Taiwan's high mountain streams since the last ice age, but it was clear it would need help if it was to last much longer. That's when Xueba National Park stepped in. The park has spent years breeding the fish and releasing them into suitable streams. It has also reversed the effects of human development around the salmon's habitat and organized anti-poaching patrols to protect the fish. A new population survey taken last year was just released Wednesday, and it shows that all this work has paid off. Based on the survey, researchers estimate the salmon population has broken 10,000, a new high. John Van Trieste, RTI News. 
And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist. For Radio Taiwan International, I'm Paula Chow. See you next week. Bye-bye. Listening to Radio Taiwan International. If you have any comments or suggestions about our programs, you can email us at rti at rti.org.tw. In terms of being discriminated based on my color, never in this country. I am much more discriminated in my own country in Kenya than I am discriminated here. So, all these many years of this year, fourth year, I have I interacted with many Taiwanese people. I'm, I'm married to a Taiwanese. Never, never seen any type of discrimination based on my pigmentation, based on my color. Hello and welcome to this week's On the Line brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Taiwan on April 9th angrily condemned accusations and demanded an apology from the chief of WHO, a World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. Dr. Tedros said he had been subjected to racist comments from Taiwan for months. Taiwan President Chai Ing-wen said Taiwan's 23 million people have been excluded from international organizations and Taiwan knows better than anyone else what it feels like to be discriminated against and isolated. To find out more, we're joined today by a Kenyan professor, Dr. Kennedy Ondieki. Dr. Kennedy Ondieki once taught at National Zhengzhou University in Taiwan, one of the most prestigious universities. Dr. Kennedy Ondieki, you are an African from Kenya. How long have you lived in Taiwan? Because what I'm going to ask is related to the next question. I have lived here in Taiwan on and off for 10 years. So 10 years right now, during your stay in Taiwan, Dr. Kennedy, have you in any way been mistreated or discriminated against because of your skin color? All these many years I've lived in this country, I have never been discriminated. Discrimination has many different shapes and sizes. But in terms of being discriminated based on my color, never in this country. I am much more discriminated in my own country in Kenya than I am discriminated here in this country. So all these many years I've lived here, I've taught here, I have interacted with many Taiwanese people. I'm, as you already know, Mr. Carlson, I'm married to a Taiwanese for many years. I've lived here, I've taught here, I have worked with many Taiwanese people. I have never, never seen any type of discrimination based on my pigmentation, based on my color. And yes, there's uh, hiccups here and there. Sometimes people might look at you differently, but uh, Taiwan is a very great country, very decent, very tolerant to foreigners. I'm not speaking just as a Kenyan, as an African, but I'm speaking as a person who has lived with uh, the Taiwanese people, great people in many ways, very generous, very kind. But Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, the Director General of the World Health Organization, who is from Ethiopia, said for the last three months, he has been called names, even a Negro, or discriminated against by Taiwan. 
and Taiwan's foreign ministry did not associate itself. Now, the three-minute remarks at WHO criticizing Taiwan for being a racist angered the public and the government of Taiwan, which demanded that he apologize for his misleading accusations. Now, first of all, Dr. Kennedy, why did he make such accusations? I think that the um, issue with uh, the Director General, uh, Dr. Tedros, has been really misconstrued. There's much, so much misinformation. And I think uh, even when he spent the time to speak and even call out on Taiwan, we have to look at uh, the context of what he was speaking about. The situation of racism and being called names, being black, being Negro, and many other things did not come from Taiwan. It came from uh, two uh, French doctors who were on a global conversation on uh, vaccine in a TV in uh, Paris. They were talking, being asked, what are you doing with the new vaccine uh, anti-COVID? Uh, and I think uh, some of uh, the two uh, guests, uh, great scientists and doctors of uh, French, they had this innuendo and suggestion and proposal, why can't we move the clinical testing from France, from Europe, and take it to Africa? Because Africans, according to what they say, they don't have masks, they don't have protective gears, they don't have beds, they don't have the agency. And that's the kind of... Uh, uh, reaction that uh, Dr. Tedros was referring to where he said that is a colonial mentality. How dare you speak that we need to be able to move the clinical study on vaccine to Africa? If it has to happen, it has to start from France, from Europe, from America, from mainland China, in tandem with Africa. But to move the clinical studies to find the Africans as guinea pigs, as the test lab, that was absolutely initiated over my dead body. That's what the racism and slurs he was talking about. The case of Taiwan, when he singled out Taiwan, he talks about the pressure that he has been receiving. It's not the uh, epithets and pigots and slurs and all that, but it has to do with the information that somehow Taiwan, and Taiwan has shown it, that email that sent to WHO uh, in terms of uh, calling the shots, is this going to be so difficult? Is it going to be able to transmit from man to man, human to human? And so the pressure I was talking about is coming from Taiwan. It's not the racism. It is not being called names or the African being called monkeys or whatever you and blacks and Negroes or niggers, whatever the names might be using. But it's talking about the pressure that he's getting, and it's true that he might have received the email when Taiwan was the first to have made a first call that this might be a not the real normal disease as what we thought. It is a very new thing, and it will be, there's a probability of it being transmitted human to human. So what he was referring to, I think the Taiwanese have taken it out of proportion and trying even to say they need an apology. As think that Taiwan are not looking for apology. Taiwan is looking for the truth. They were the first ones to have been able to uh, alert WHO. And in that case, they need the truth. We were the first person to have sent you the information. We are looking for information for our own people. We're 23 million people. We wanted to make sure that this is not going to be a pandemic. So Taiwan is looking for the truth, not for the apology. And so for Taiwanese to be able to construe it from even foreign uh, affairs minister, 
and talking about it, we need an apology. I don't think that Taiwan needs an apology. Taiwan is looking for the truth. And so what uh, Dr. Tedros was absolutely referring to, it was from the colonial mentality of the Europeans, especially the two Frenchmen and scientists and doctors who were saying, let's go and uh, test it on the Africans. We have done the test on HIV AIDS. We have done the test of prostitutes. We can be able to use the Africans. That is absolutely inconceivable. That is an evil thinking thought. That is what he was talking about. Yes, and he continued talking about, I don't give a damn about what you call me black, you call me what, you call me nigger. That is okay with me. I don't care if you're threatening me. So the threats or the death threats are not coming from Taiwan. They are coming from other parts of the world. You know, the global pandemic is not in Taiwan, it's not in many China, it's in the U.S., it's in uh, Italy, it's in Spain, it's many parts of the world, so is Africa. And so here is a man who was under a very immense pressure from the world. You know, look at how many people have died, 100,000, 1.8 million infected, and many will be dying. And so even when the second and third, fourth wave are going to be coming, we'll be headquarters in Africa. And so here is a man who's technically beat, and I don't think that it's not fair for him to have singled out Taiwan. But he should be able to single out why is Taiwan giving pressure. It has to do with we gave you the information. We were the first person who wanted the answers for this. We were the first person to have said this might be a really pandemic because it's transmitting human to human. And so I'm sure... You know, the scapegoats are now coming out, and America is using scapegoats. Everyone is using scapegoats. We have to scapegoat in Taiwan. And I think it's unfair because you should have been able to say, I'm getting the pressure from every part of the world. But I think that if the foreign ministry and the Taiwanese people and officials had looked at where the context was coming from, he was technically referring on a racial issues and discrimination based on what the French doctors who are on TV were saying, let's go and test the Africans because we have tested the AIDS and prostitutes because they're not protected. That's what the situation is, and I think that everybody is technically taking all this misinformation, disinformation, and uh, it's easier digestive narratives, but what the doctor was referring to on issues of race and being targeted and bigoted was not coming from Taiwan. But the pressure on, in terms of uh, the information, who called you know, the short first, that's what it was frying. It's been coming from Taiwan over the, the months. And the issue here is, did you receive the email we send you? And that is where I think the, the whole story is. But uh, in terms of uh, race, no, race is not coming from Taiwan. Discrimination also not come from Taiwan. Taiwan should not be able to apologize for anything, say we're not discriminatory, because you have not discriminated in the first place. And so I think that the, uh, this uh, information that is out of context, uh, look at and you know, you can go on the YouTube and you can be able to see exactly when the two uh, doctors, I think one is uh, Jean-Paul uh, Myra and there's another doctor called Locke, those who are the ones who are on TV and the ones who are technically very discriminatory saying, let's take it to Africa and test the Africans because they have no equipment. Uh, you know, again, <laughs> Carlton, every single time there's a new virus, Africa is the lab that they use to find vaccines, are the ones who are being used. Why should we be the ones who have to be used as guinea pigs as our t uh, test labs? And that's what uh, the uh, Director General was referring to in terms of race. But in terms of uh, pressure from Taiwan, it has to do with the issues of the email, the truth. Yes, but uh, still, I think he could have attacked the two doctors in France uh, for being discriminatory. But 
instead, uh, he uh, targeted at Taiwan, um, saying that Taiwan is very discriminatory and has discriminated against uh, his uh, black color. And uh, I think that's not appropriate. And also talking about the email and Taiwan already confirmed on April 11th that they sent the email to WHO and they actually revealed the content of the email saying that they could be human-to-human transmission and that email was sent in December and was shared to the U.S. on the same day. Now, why did the WHO still refuse to admit the letter sent to the WHO? I think uh, um, this is uh, a question that uh, down the road, maybe in post-COVID era, when they will have to do an assessment, maybe it will be an inquiry. That's when the question will be who knew what, when, how, and why if the information which was sent by Taiwan as early as uh, December 2019, why it was not acted upon, why the WHO did not raise a red flag. This is uh, a question that uh, Mr. Tetros himself or the Director General will be answerable to. It is unconscious. The truth will always triumph. But the idea that uh, Taiwan is the one who's blamed now for the pressure, but I think the pressure that he's referring to, the criticism that he's referring to, has to do with that email. And it's true that Taiwan has been able to provide evidence that here is a, a copy of uh, the information we sent to WHO. Um, it was never, uh, whether it was a cover-up, whether it was silence, uh, that is a question that, uh, that Dr. Tedros himself will be up to answer, and the truth will be known when maybe they do an assessment, an internal assessment, to see what they would have done better and how they would reform the WHO uh, to make sure that uh, in future there are other countries, whether they are, you know, this is not a political issue, sir. We do understand the one-China policy, but this is not about one-China policy. And uh, a, an organization of a world like that should not be able to be politicized. They shouldn't have been able to, uh, you know, to cave into any whims from any country. This is a very independent organization. Their job is to save lives, to save Taiwanese lives, Kenyan lives, American lives, you know, Chinese lives. Every one of us who are here in this planet, 6.3 million, 6.5 billion, sorry, so in that case, again, there's so much uh, things happening. Um, it's not only that he's getting pressure from Taiwan, but he's getting pressure from the U.S. Trump is technically uh, looking at, uh, at what uh, the WHO did. If they had done it quicker, they would have informed the countries uh, quicker. Maybe we will be talking totally different things. In hindsight, this will be able to come around. What we should we have done better? Uh, and that will be a question, I think, uh, 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 Dr. Tedros himself and the uh, the officials uh, in uh, WHO will have to answer. But the truth of the matter is Taiwan has been able to show we were the first person to uh, alert you, to warn you. They were forewarned. And that was the first part of our interview with Dr. Kennedy Ondieki. Dr. Kennedy Ondieki once taught at National Zhengzhou University in Taiwan, one of the most prestigious universities in Taiwan. And that's it for this week's Online, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening to us in the next one. Take goodbye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs> 